Let's pray. Father in heaven, we this is our prayer that we would prepare our minds and that we would be sober-minded in order that we, our hope might be set fully on the hope and on the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ and, and that is coming. So Lord, uh, I pray that you help our minds to be uh, active as, as we sit under the preaching of your word, as I even share, Lord, uh, give me the strength to do that as my mind works uh, with my mouth and, and as our minds work, as we listen together, uh, as we hear your word. And Lord, may we May we learn to love you all the more with a heart, soul, mind, and strength as we go from here in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Many of you know that I was a student at Nippon Bible College, uh, Bible College down the road, and, and uh, I remember taking a class when I was a student uh, regarding spiritual disciplines, and uh, one of the first things we did in that class was take a personality test, and I really liked that. I really enjoyed that part because you get to know who you are and your strengths and all these things. And uh, I, I failed to remember that the professor said, the purpose of us doing this is to find our strengths and our weaknesses in order that we might f- uh, work on our weaknesses in our spiritual disciplines. That, that was the purpose of it. But um, as we did the tests, what it became for myself and the rest of my class, uh, as it resulted, was, look at me, and this is my strengths, what's yours? And I remember being hailed as a 99% extrovert. Uh, so I just talked to everyone and anything, and I could be friends with a rock. Uh, <laughs> and, and I remember just running away with that. And the problem was I failed to think about things, and I remember one of the items, too, was that I was a 75% feeler and a 25% thinker, and I was like, ooh, I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know, like, uh, and I feel with my heart, and I just love people, and, and I ran away from that class, failing to think logically about the purpose of that, and that it was supposed to tell me that I'm, you know, I can be mature enough to be alone, and to spend time in the word of God alone and pray to the Lord in secret and that's some of the things that I really struggled to do but I failed to think through it and uh, praise the Lord for marriage and that he's balanced me out a little bit because <laughs> uh, when I got married I became more introverted 94% extrovert was my result after <laughs> big jump but I, I remember someone telling me Josh you can't just you know, and this person was more on the intellectual side of things, and he encouraged me in the faith, and he said, Josh, I can't just be a cold-blooded intellectual, he said. And neither can you, Josh, be a gullible sentimentalist. And what he meant by that is you can't just think too much or feel too much. There needs to be a balance. But for me, he said, Josh, you need to think through things clearly. And this is a tension within Christianity that we might see today that are you on this side or on this side? And, and a lot of times, even as we think about today, as the songs that we're singing, were you more on the rejoicing and arm-waving side or were you more on the I want to think through these words side? I think our passage here today exhorts us, no matter what side we are, 
it's not about personalities or leanings or wirings. It's about thinking and thinking a specific way about a specific thing. And, and that's what uh, we're going to see here in First Peter 1, verse 13. Just one verse here today. So we're going to begin with the first word there, as you'll see in your outline, uh, the word therefore. Something I also learned at Bible college and something that our grade 7 to 12 are used to doing here on Wednesday nights during Bible studies, asking a question, what is therefore, therefore? It's a little catchy, might be cheesy, but very important. This word, therefore, is especially important in our passage today. And this verse, it basically means for this reason. Right? Therefore, what Peter says in verse 13 is based on everything that he has set up until now. And this becomes even more important when we understand that this verse contains the very first command or the very first instruction in this whole letter. Think of everything that we've read through in the first 12 verses. And think about, again, as we've learned before, this is just one big sentence in the original language, right? And so we've ended each sermon in the past couple weeks with some conclusions as to how we respond to these truths, right? But Peter hasn't explicitly commanded us to do anything. He's just been proclaiming truth to us. Think of these truths in verse, from verses 1 to 12. Because we are chosen exiles, according to God's foreknowledge, in the sanctification of the Spirit, I'm in verse 2 here, for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. Verse 3. Because God, in his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because, verse 4, he's keeping our inheritance perfectly safe in heaven for us. And he's keeping us for that by guarding us by his power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, because we rejoice in this, even though for a time we're grieved by various trials. Verse 7, because the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, because we love him and rejoice in him and believe in him, though we have not seen him. And as last week we looked at, because the prophets served us by prophesying about this grace that was to be ours. And because the angels long to look into the salvation that we have been given. Because of all of this, Peter says, now do this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we can see how this word, therefore, is really important, right? Specifically, Peter is telling us not to let all of this truth go in one ear and out the other, you know, he's telling us, in light of all of this truth, to respond to it by setting our hope fully on it. And more broadly, though, we need to important, uh, notice the important order of truth and then command. Peter tells us what is true of us before he tells us how to respond to that truth. That's the order of operations here of gospel-shaped living 
First, God saves us, gives us a new identity, and then he trains us how to live out that new identity. He instructs us on how to become what we already are. In other words, we don't obey him because we're trying to impress him or prove anything to him. We're just living out this new identity that he has already given us. And so our obedience to the Lord is motivated then by grace and empowered by grace and fueled by grace from past grace to present grace to future grace, as Peter lines out for us in this chapter. Now that might seem like a given to you, but think about all the followers of various religions all around the world who go through their life and trying to follow all the rules and just hoping without any ground for their hope that maybe they'll be good enough in the end. I remember going to a mosque during my second year missions practicum at NBC and the Muslim scholar uh, that was teaching us said exactly this when I asked him, so can you be sure about getting into paradise, heaven as they knew it, And he said, well, I I can't know that because that's up to Allah. All I can do in this life is struggle and hope to make it. That's his verbatim words as far as I can remember. That's what's happening there. Or maybe you get this angle from uh, uh, different backgrounds or your upbringing. Perhaps you were raised in an environment where you were told to follow the rules first And then grace was given to you only if you performed well enough, which I think we'd all agree is not grace at all. And you know that trying to live like a Christian apart from being born again and enjoying the grace of Jesus Christ, it just doesn't work. So so here Peter opens up with 12 verses of these glorious truths that just is. It's true. Of us, and in light of this truth, because of this truth or these truths, he exhorts us to live in accordance with this truth. Now, on the flip side, Peter's words here are also a challenge for those of us who would just like to enjoy the grace of Jesus and never do anything with it. We can't miss that Peter is telling us to do something with the truth that we've been taught. It's not just a suggestion or a good idea or a must-know or a fun fact. No. As a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter commands us to action. And those who have been born again will then gladly respond. So in the verses ahead here, Peter's going to spell it out for us and what, what it looks like, what it actually looks like to live in accordance with what is true of us. And today we're starting with verse 13, and just verse 13. And his first imperative or command for his readers is this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that you're probably thinking there's a couple uh, phrases there. Uh, why are you skipping to the last one? We'll get to that, but we're going to work our way around. Because as far as the grammar of this verse is concerned, this is the main command to set your hope fully on this coming grace. So, um, and Peter tells us to do this. So let's break the statement down one piece at a time, starting with the end. 
starting with the revelation of Jesus Christ. This should be familiar words to us, especially from the last couple of weeks, right? Jesus is coming back. And right now, he is veiled from our eyes, but one day, on that day, he will be revealed. And verse 7 uses this uh, same phrase to describe his return and appearing. And the appearing of Jesus, at the appearing of Jesus, grace will be brought to us. Because when Jesus is revealed and finally we see him, our salvation will be seen. Our, uh, Colossians says our life we will see. Salvation will be revealed, like Peter says in verse 5. And this reminds us of that full and final salvation that we're waiting for, the resurrection of our bodies, freedom from sin, dwelling with Christ in a new world forever, seeing him and being with him, which is why we rejoice. This is all grace we don't deserve And it's grace that Jesus is bringing with him to us when he's revealed. Doesn't that sound like good news? Especially in light of what's happening today, maybe here around us or globally in Israel. Like, Doesn't that just strike you as good news? Like, Jesus, come soon. Come back. Yet the return of Christ will not be an experience of grace for so many. 1 Thessalonians speaks about the day, quote, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1. To those who have rejected the Lord, his return will mean the end of all hope and all grace. But to those through his great mercy have been born again to this living hope that Peter is speaking of, the return of Jesus Christ will be grace. And that's good news. Why? Because Jesus took the judgment that we deserved upon himself on the cross. And when he returns, he'll bring grace for the people who knew him, and loved him without seeing him, who with fire-tested faith longed for the praise and honor and glory, not today, but later on at his revelation. This is all of Peter's truths that he's been saying that we've learned in the past couple of weeks. But things are now escalating when we consider what we're supposed to do with these very truths What are we to do in regard to this grace that is coming, that's going to be brought to us by Christ, with Christ? And the answer is that we are to set our hope fully on it, on that grace. We aren't just supposed to hear about these truths and think, oh, that'll be nice someday, so I'm just going to live my life now. No, Peter debunks that, and he says, no, we're to fix our hope completely on this grace, that's what the NASB translation says. We, we are to hope in the grace that will be given to us at the return of Christ in such a way that we don't hope in anything else alongside of this. 
Sam Storms writes this, We are to devote every ounce of mental, spiritual, and emotional energy to contemplating and concentrating on the grace that is to come. This is a striking command. This is a tall order. It's all the more striking when we think about the kinds of things we set our hopes on today. Think about it. If you're a young kid in school here this morning, you might be hoping, looking forward to that next break from school, maybe getting uh, a nice Christmas present. I know I looked forward to those things. Maybe if you're a little older in high school or in college, you might hope for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If you're a Bible college student, you might hope for that bridal college experience. I was a victim of that. Tongue-in-cheek. Then eventually you hope to graduate, right? And maybe get a better job, right? Or, or buy a house so you can level up to this uh, new level of home ownership, at least as our culture makes us think. Maybe if you have kids, you might hope to raise good kids or you, you might have hope in getting out of debt or being financially stable. Maybe you're hoping to retire at a certain age. Maybe hope to do or buy all kinds of things when that happens. And maybe you're in that stage and you're hoping that, I don't know, your family wants to come back together again. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. And we can ask God for them or even look forward to them. But they're terrible places to fix our hope in. If we fix our hope on them, we're just going to be let down. Why? Because all of these things are passing away. And the eternal is coming. Not today, but later on. But even more so, there are terrible places to fix our hope in because Peter has told us that there's one place, one place to set our hope in. And that's on this grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not our friends, not our spouses, not our children, our homes, our jobs. And trust me, I speak with uh, someone who is tempted to these things, especially given my culture. But we're to fix our hope, as Peter says, as Jesus says, as his word says, so completely on this grace that will be ours and nothing else. That's our hope. A couple of years ago, we walked through 2 Timothy, and we heard Paul talking about loving the appearing of Jesus, 2 Timothy 4.8, and how that was contrasted with loving this present age. You know, when you hear about Demas, who, who is in love with this present world and deserted Paul. And here, today, our passage is telling us the same thing. The revelation of Jesus is not one thing that we hope for among many things, in this life, no, we are to hope completely, totally, and only in his return. And the hope and the grace that comes with Jesus, nothing else. I hope that's been stressing in our minds here as we think on these things. And that's a challenge, to say the least. Because how can we do this? I bring up these tensions because... It might feel impossible for most, if not all of us, if we're being honest. It's one thing to hope in Christ's returns when we're here like this on Sunday mornings, but even here, it can be hard. What about all of the days in between? 
Days where you're so pressured with so many challenges, so many ideas, so many places to set your hope in. How is it even possible to do this? Well, one thing is certain. It's not happening by itself. Setting your hope fully on the grace that will come and that will be brought to you by Jesus when you finally see him is going to take deliberation and intention and careful attention. And that's exactly what Peter is getting at in the first part of this verse. Before he says, set your hope fully on these things, he gives us two phrases that tell us how or in what manner we're to set our hope on the return of Christ. Here's how it's done. By preparing your minds for action. There it is, that first praise. It starts with getting our minds, our thinking, ready for action. <clears throat> the phrase here literally is, gird up the loins of your mind, which is how the good old King James Version translates it. It's a picture that comes from how men dressed back in the day. It's a picture uh, where their basic garment was a long robe that hung to their knees or lower. And it was great until you had to engage in any kind of serious work that required any kind of speed or movement in your legs. Think about the father of the prodigal son. When he sees the prodigal son far away, he runs to him. Right? What did he have to do? He would have had to pull it up. A little bit. And so that's what men had to do back then. They pulled up the bottom part of their robe between their legs, tuck it into their belt, basically turning the robe into a pair of shorts. And now they can run. Now they can fight. Now they can do whatever they needed to do in those moments. It was the ancient equivalent of rolling up your sleeves. I won't do that this morning, but it was getting ready for action. And not only was this a common picture, but it was a common picture with quite a biblical background. In Exodus 12, 11, when God was giving his people instructions on their first Passover before the exodus from Egypt, he said to eat it with your belt fastened. In the Greek Old Testament, that phrase is with your loins girded up. Very similar wording to today's passage. They were to be ready to move, ready for action as they waited for their deliverance. In the New Testament, Luke 12, verse 35, Jesus gives instruction on how to be ready for his return. And what does he say? Luke 12, 35 says this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Stay dressed for action. Guess what that is in Greek? Well, the King James Version helps us again. Let your loins be girded about. Jesus tells us to be in a place of readiness for action like the Israelites waiting for the exodus. And today, as we wait for his appearing, his coming, his return. And Paul picks up on this idea when he describes the armor of God in Ephesians 6. He says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What does the King James say? Having your loins skirt about with truth. I'm not suggesting for us to switch to KJV, but it really helps to think through these things. Similar wording, girded loins, pointing to a readiness for action through the truth. And Peter brings all of this together and says that the way that we are to set our hope fully on this grace that is to be given to us 
is to have the sleeves of our minds rolled up, so to speak. In other words, we are disciplining our thinking in order to set our hope on the return of Christ. Our brains are not lazing back in a recliner watching the world go by passively, but we are rather actively engaging our minds in order to deliberately set our hope there on that grace that will come when Christ returns. That is how we prepare our minds for action. The second phrase Peter uses in verse 13 shows us how to set our hope fully on the grace that is coming with Christ. And that is, how he says it there, being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. And the word he uses here, literally, is just sober, which, just like in English, often has the meaning of careful, self-controlled judgment and alert, disciplined thinking. Peter Davids writes that this word refers to, quote, complete clarity of mind and its resulting good judgment. And once again, we think of the words of Jesus in Luke 12. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they might open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Staying awake when it's late and you're waiting for someone in those moments requires careful, disciplined thought. You need to work to keep alert. And if you're trying to stay awake and to stay alert, I think we all know that alcohol isn't going to help. Which is why Peter's word picture of sober-minded works so well. Setting our hope on the return of Jesus will require sharp senses and alert thinking. We are going to want to avoid anything that dulls our senses and makes it harder for us to think carefully. And we're going to want to be careful lest even those unavoidable things in life have this effect on us. Again, Peter Davids writes that for Peter, the cares of this life and the pressure of persecution can intoxicate the Christian and distract his or her focus just as easily as wine or strong drink might. The need of the hour is clear judgment and a mind and will prepared to resist anything that would deflect them from a hope set on Jesus' appearing alone. And so if we bring this all together, the summary is, as it's titled there, the Christian's mind and the Christian's hope. It is by having our minds prepared for action and being sober-minded that we will be able to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ comes. And I don't think we can miss the connection here, right, between the use of our minds and the exercise of our hope. What will it take to hope fully in Christ's return? Well, our minds. Not sprawled out on the couch with a beer in our hands, but alert and active and clear. Thomas Schreiner writes, Hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Thinking in a new way does not happen automatically. It requires effort. It requires concentration 
and it requires intentionality. Here's the point. Christians must think if we're going to hope. So this sermon is titled, Think to Hope. Thinking is a core part about being a Christian. Listen to four, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 18, when Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Hard hearts make for futile, darkened, ignorant thinking. But, made new in Christ, God's people are to love the Lord with all of our minds. Not just our hearts and souls and strength, though that's part of it, but we're to love the Lord with all of our minds. And setting our hopes on the return of Christ requires careful, active engagement of our renewed minds in Christ. So we need to understand that Peter makes a statement to all of his readers, not just to scholars or students or the people who get A's in school, which means that using your mind doesn't have to do, sorry, using your mind does not have anything to do with being an intellectual or being counted as smart as our world defines it. Some of the best Christian minds that we can know have been people who didn't think anything of themselves especially in being very smart. They didn't have degrees or know other languages or read big books for fun, but they did use their minds to think in in a careful and active way. They didn't believe everything they were told. They read the Bible as deeply and carefully as they could and thought about what they read, and in doing so, they engaged their minds in a way that cultivated and deepened their hope and that grace that is to come at the return of Christ. And in fact, some of the laziest minds that we can know having, uh, you know, if, you're, if you've been in uh, Bible college or any academic realm within uh, the biblical realm, the Christian realm, and, and, and people who love big words and these big ideas and call themselves scholars or intellectuals uh, have advanced degrees, yet... These people tend to be sloppy and lazy in the way that they apply their minds to their walk with God and their hope in Christ's return. I have friends like this who I graduated with at Bible college. So it's not about your IQ or how well you do in school. This is about how active and careful your mind is as you go through life setting your hope on the return of Christ. It's about making sure that our minds, however powerful or unpowerful we think it is, that we always are ready for action. It's not about switching off our thinking and letting it get dulled with intoxicating influences. No, the Christian's mind and the Christian's hope are intertwined and are inseparable. We think in order to hope. So what does this look like for us to put into practice? Here's where we jump into application here. In many ways, this is an easy passage to apply because it is application, And this is how Peter applies everything we've learned in the previous few weeks. But still, we're going to need to think a bit more carefully. What does this kind of active, careful thought do for the sake 
of active hope, and what does it look like in real life? So let's look at two ways, first negatively and then positively. By negatively, I mean being alert to the various influences in our thinking that surround us and being careful about anything that will dull our thinking so that we stop hoping fully on the return of Christ. Just think about all the sources of information and noise that there is in our world today and how it's so easy for us to become exactly that dull and intoxicated in our thinking. You know, if Peter and his readers needed to be sober-minded in the first century before social media or Hollywood, how much more us today? Our minds need to be nowhere more engaged than when we are being bombarded with all of these messages from the world. It's quite concerning when we think of, and when we really honestly and carefully think of the way that many Christians today ourselves included, and how we interact with entertainment, with media, and doing so in a way that doesn't involve much thought at all, whether it's watching or listening or reading things without much attention to all the bigger issues. Don't we realize that every movie or TV show or YouTube video or even advertisements, they all have a message That is, uh, coming from a certain view of the world, and thus the world catechizing us. That it's telling us things, what's good and what's true and what's beautiful and important. I mean, this is one of the reasons why our culture has changed its mind so rapidly on many key issues. In 2008, Americans selected Barack Obama, who stated his belief that marriage was between one man and one woman, a monogamous marriage. Just look how, how much our ground, uh, our culture has covered in the 15 years since. Well, first of all, Barack changed his mind on that when he said, we love all people, right? He went back on his statements. Yet how much of that has been because of media and the types of heroes that our culture has held up for us to be entertained by? For years, our culture has celebrated stories of those who throw off the mold of who they're supposed to be and instead choose for themselves who they want to be how they want to express their own authentic self because it's my body, it's my choice. We're horrified to hear about 14-year-olds struggling, uh, undergoing life-altering surgeries, permanently changing their bodies to follow their hearts. They're not even mature enough to vote or hold a driver's license. Yet how many of those seeds were sown in movies that we watch now? I remember watching uh, a movie with uh, Emily's little sisters. It was an innocent-looking Disney movie called The Little Mermaid, and yet it celebrates a teenage girl going against her father's wishes and permanently changing her body because she fell in love with someone she just met. Some of the most innocent-looking stories in our world are laden with ideas that if we really think about them, super dangerous and we can't say that they're just silly stories can't just say oh it ends in an hour or two and people don't know the difference between stories and real life no because they don't all kinds of people in our world are living out those stories in real time all around us and so as Christians we can't turn off our brains 
We can't just swallow what we're fed. Anytime we're behind a screen or reading words or listening even to podcasts or music, we need to have our minds turned on, prepared for action, soberly considering what we're being told, as Peter commands us here, as Jesus commands us. Sometimes that might mean that we do go ahead and watch or listen or read, but as we do so, we're thinking as a Christian, the whole time about the messages that we're receiving and how those messages compare to God's word. As a matter of fact, it's actually getting kind of annoying watching with my wife now, and she says, oh, that's unbiblical and this and that. I'm like, that's true, but can we just watch the movie? (laughs) You know? This even applies to Christian material that we consume, right? Sometimes it's easy to recline and relax to a good Christian movie when it's actually the time that we need to be awake and alert all the more, because more often than not, these Christian movies today tend to be shallow or go beyond what Scripture teaches by adding or taking away from Scripture for the sake of imagination. And I would argue that this can be more dangerous than non-Christian movies, because getting gospel truth wrong is worse than not getting any gospel truth at all. As a teenager, I remember watching hit Christian movies. I remember especially loving a movie called Facing the Giants, partially because it was about football, and that was one of my idols back then. But this movie brought me to tears because of just the story with it. And yet the ending of that movie, and some people cautioned me from it, was you know the coach, the football coach gets his dream job, this new truck and a baby that they've been hoping for the whole time. And it leads you to thinking your faith results in earthly rewards now, as opposed to hoping in the eternal despite the current situation in this life. And I realized, man, some of these movies that I've been watching is along the same lines of the, the sermons I used to enjoy when my sister was sick because this guy named Joel Osteen made us feel good and said, name it or claim it. In Jesus' name. On the other hand, sometimes this might mean that instead of watching or listening or reading, we just need to do the opposite. We just need to turn off the screen or the headphones because however discerning we're trying to be, whatever it is we're taking in might not be helping us set our hope fully on that coming grace in Christ. Either way, the point here is this. We as Christians don't ever get to take a break from being sober-minded. I didn't really want to say that this morning because I really enjoy some of these things relaxing in front of a TV and in front of my phone. But that's what Peter is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying here. We don't ever get to take a break from being sober-minded. And this isn't just about being discerning for the sake of being discerning. This is about being discerning for the sake of setting our hopes there on that grace that is coming in Christ which means we need to be active and alert on guard for anything which could dull or intoxicate our senses to the hope of Christ's return. Maybe for you that's in the flyers from a hardware store trying to sell you on ways to spend more money to make your home nicer, subtly or not so subtly encouraging you to transfer your hope from the return of Christ to a comfortable home or life here on earth, 
Maybe it has nothing to do with media at all for you this morning. Maybe it's being on guard against the intoxicating effects or grumb- of grumbling or complaining, whether it's about your health or politics or even the weather. The littlest ways that our gaze in the eternal hope and grace that we have begins to shift towards today and the things of the earth that are fading away. We need to be in guard against these things, against anything that dulls our hope in Christ's appearance. And if we find anything in our lives that's having that effect, we either, one, need to start thinking about it differently, or two, we need to avoid it entirely. A lot of people today will call that legalism. But according to Jesus, that's just what Christians do. And I'm not saying that's easy either. We must stay sober-minded and alert to any influence that would dim our hope resting fully on Christ. Now, we've been talking negatively here, but we need to flip this around, right? Because we need to be prepared for action. That means we need to balance the negative with positive, not one on each either side. So having our minds ready for action means actively using our minds to positively think about the things that will stir up and sharpen our hope in Christ's return. And we're doing that now. I mean, literally right now, as we carefully think about God's word and its implications, as we all corporately yet individually wrestle with those things that the Lord is bringing to mind right now as you sit there and as I stand here and as we struggle with this in a submissive way. And I hope our mind, your mind, is not lounging back this morning. I hope these words aren't just going in one ear and out the other. I hope our minds are ready for action even now, actively engaged, thinking about what's being said, thinking about what Peter is saying and Jesus is saying, so that we can carefully consider the truth in order to stir up our hope. Just think about this. If we were to, to truly set our hope fully on that grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ, what do we need to do with our mind in order to sustain that? How would we need to think? What sorts of habits and practices would you need to engage in in order to keep that hope alive? What is it? And here Peter is calling us to actually do that. And we're just one verse in. (laughs) To actually use our minds in whatever way necessary to keep our hope fixed on the grace of Christ's return. And it goes without saying that one of the very best ways that we can do that is to think, to read, first of all, and think about God's word regularly, both on our own and then in all the ways that we do it together as a church. I mean, isn't this why we sit under expositional preaching here on Sunday mornings? We go through careful thought and how we get to this and how we can go from here. Isn't this why we do our Bible study nights here? Whether it's the Wednesday nights with our younger folk or the monthly Sunday nights with the older folk, with men and women in our church, so that we can all corporately grow 
together and reading critically and carefully thinking about God's word on our own so that our hope both individually and together might be set fully on that coming grace in Christ? Isn't that why we do that? Maybe ask yourself, what's your reason for not coming to these things? That's my, and you might be like, Josh, you work at a church. No, no, no. That's still attention for anyone because I could do better things according to what the world's teaching me. This is our journey together. So on our own, and our time in the word privately is affected by what we do corporately. Consider last week's sermon application on taking up the New Testament and reading it slowly or using a Bible study tool like study Bibles or commentaries or reading articles on the passage that help you understand uh, what is harder to understand as you read the scriptures slowly. Maybe look into some classes that our local Bible college offers for the general public once a year. Actually see what's going on there. I used to antagonize Bible college. Maybe the opposite needs to be said. And what I'm not saying here is that you need to be a bookworm or an academic or a Bible scholar to do these things. What I am saying, what Peter, Jesus is saying here is that we need to think more and deeper about this bottomless Bible so that our hope would be set fully on the coming grace in Christ as this book is saying rather than what's happening tomorrow or the fun thing that's scheduled next week or next month or the next movie or whatever that's coming out next year. And shouldn't we want this? The return of Jesus in grace for us will literally be the best thing ever. I hope you believe that, and I hope you want to believe that as you struggle with the tensions of this world and the eternal hope and grace and glory that you will receive. So why would we want to be distracted with anything less if this is the best thing ever that is to come? Why would we want to be satisfied with cheaper pleasures? Okay, any good movie, I've always struggled with this, like, why does a good movie have to end? Well, exactly, because it's temporary. Why does a good life have to end? Because we're temporary. So our hope should not lie in those things. I hope that our hope is, in, is set on this wonderful truth as fully as we can. And that means getting our minds off the couch. It's our application here. This morning, it means getting our brains in the game, thinking carefully for the sake of hoping fully. I mean, we've just scratched the surface, believe it or not, of some of the things that this could mean today, but our minds are always active in thinking to hope in something will always be growing. So, as we end, I want to remind you, I want to remind us of the good news of the gospel logic in this passage. Setting our hope completely on the return of Jesus is not a requirement for grace. Verse 13 isn't a test that we need to pass in order to receive that grace. No. The grace is coming simply because Jesus, your Lord and Savior, is coming. Yet nevertheless, because he is coming, we've been called to action. So this is what we do as we wait, while we wait. So please, determine to make a step towards active, sober thinking today. That might mean even just memorizing this verse, writing it out on a sticky note, committing it to memory, 
so that the next time we're catechized by the world, we remember, oh, this is what we need to set our hope in fully. So many steps we could take, but let's just make sure we take a small step towards the appearing of Jesus Christ, towards the grace that is coming, the eternal satisfaction, the joy that that we will receive that will never end. Let's take one step and a couple more steps after that so that we might be joyfully obedient to the Apostle Peter's instruction here, that we, preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, would set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a command from you, and we recognize its full authority, and we recognize that our flesh might wrestle with it and struggle with it, yet help our flesh to do so in a way that submits to your word and knows that we're renewed in Christ, that our minds are renewed, and so we no longer have to think with the futility of our mind. So Lord, help us to live in a new life, and the life that is to come, our true lives that is hidden with Christ, and one day will be revealed. Help us to set our hopes fully on that grace that is coming in Christ. And as we wait for that, Lord, help us to be strengthened by one another, empowered by your Spirit, united in Christ. May we all be transfixed on the coming hope and the coming grace with Christ. Help us to take these steps, whatever it is. We all have different steps to take. You might have the same steps to take, but help us to take those steps and keep in step with the Spirit moving forward from today in your name. Amen.